Well, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah, and um, Isaiah chapter 30 is the passage that the Lord's been putting on my heart. Um, it's, if, as, as you, like, walk with the Lord, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and one will be provided for you. It's a, a great blessing to not just be able to hear the word through your ears, but to see the word with your eyes, and you can retain more information that way. So if you don't have a physical Bible, uh, raise your hand, and there'll be one put in your hand. And if you don't have a Bible at all, you can, you can keep that Bible. Um, and, uh, but then you've got to take really good care of it. Don't just keep it and take it home and store it on the shelf. Uh, you've got to take good care of it and bring it back next time. Um, but um, we're going to be in Isaiah. I, I love Isaiah chapter 30 because it's one of those chapters that the Lord has used in my life. Um, I specifically remember several instances where I had worked myself up into a... Uh, fervor in, in a commitment to do something, and the Lord used Isaiah chapter 30, it was just a strong enough word to get me to listen to him. You know, the Lord knows how to get our attention. And so if you walk with the Lord for a long period of time and you've read through the Bible and, and you're, you're, you're a man or a woman of the word, you know, you develop a relationship with a passage of scripture. And every time you come on that passage of scripture, you're like, oh, wait, hold on. I know what this, <laughs> what is this saying, you know? And, um, and uh, you get to know and love the word of God. So I love this passage. It's a blessing to be able to share it with you. Um, we're going to pray and then we're going to dive into it. Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. And I pray, God, as your word is taught, Lord, may you speak to our hearts. Lord, may you move in our hearts. Um, God, I pray, I, I, I may have read it before, but Lord, may you speak something new to me, Lord. I, I know it's just a... a the same word, Lord. Nothing changes. The interpretation is the same, but Lord, maybe a new application, uh, Lord, a new depth of insight, Lord. And, and Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us here, that you would give us ears to hear your heart and help me to not interfere with what you want to do, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as far as an outline for this, um, uh, there's an outline for chapter 30 and uh, chapter 30 and 31, uh, which I was very happy that all started with the letter R. It was very alliterated. It's like one of those personal goals as a teacher to have an outline that is alliterated. Um, and that makes sense because you can force it, and then, but people know. That's my, I'm, I'm usually the one, and, oh, that word was forced. That doesn't belong there. Um, the first uh, is verses 1 through 5. I, I have here the word rebuke. And then uh, the second uh, Roman numeral uh, would be verses 6 and 7, and then I have their uh, ridicule or regret. Um, and then the third Roman numeral would be verses 8 through 17, and for that I have rejection. And then in um, Roman numeral 4, uh, restoration, verses 18 through 26. And then uh, Roman numeral 5 would be retribution, verse tw uh, verses 27 through 33. And then for chapter 31, I just have review because it really just feels like the Lord covers it all over again. Um, but um, I have, there's more, and it's also alliterated, but that's just, I feel like I'm just kind of gloating in my own enjoyment of my own alliterated outline. So I'm going to pass right by that, and that's probably the last time I'll mention it. But if you want it later, you can have it. Um, Isaiah chapter 30. What's interesting about the chapter is if, for some kind of backstory, I, as I was reading through it and trying to understand what the Lord was trying to speak through me or to me, um, 
I wanted to really place this in, in, in Israel's history. It was just really hard to do. And I've listened to several teachers on it as well as looked up several commentaries. And I can't find what king this is uh, occurring, uh, during which period this is occurring. Because um, I know that this is tied to what I see happening later on in Hezekiah's life. And even in Isaiah chapter 35, you're going to see um, a lot of the promises that God gives here, he's going to fulfill in Hezekiah's life. And so it made me go back to, because of what's happening in this chapter, it made me go back to his, Hezekiah's father's life. Hezekiah's father was a very wicked king called King Ahaz. And um, he was the kind of king that when he sinned, uh, when, when he sinned, there would be consequences on the nation of Israel. When things got worse, he would sin more. You know, not the kind of person that when there's a challenge, he would repent. He was the kind of person that when there was a, a difficulty or a hardship or an affliction, he would double down on his sin. You know, if, if Syria defeated him, he'd say, I wonder what God Syria is worshiping. Because they're defeating us, so their gods must be stronger than ours. So why don't I just start worshiping their gods? You know, and when, when God would send uh, the, the Syrians and the nation of Israel from the north to attack Judah in the south, King Ahaz would say, well, maybe if I take all of the wealth in the, in the house of God, since I'm not worshiping him anyway, and I send that over to Assyria, then maybe they will attack and I can make a league with them and they'll attack these two nations that are attacking me and they'll stop attacking me. And he did that and it worked for him. He got a measure of relief at that time. And then after he got a measure of relief, he decided, why don't I go see what the, the Syrians are worshiping? He goes to visit Damascus, loves the altar he sees there worshiping idols, and he brings it back to Israel and tells the high priest, before I get back, I want this altar put in place of the altar that we use to worship the Lord. I want you to worship idols where God is supposed to be worshipped. This is a very, very wicked king. This is the kind of uh, lifestyle that, that, that Hezekiah was born into, the, the, the legacy that he had to live up to, uh, a very low standard. And, and so, and it, but it says that even towards the end of his reign, uh, Assyria was attacking, uh, was attacking, he had league with Assyria because he gave him all the money from the temple, but they didn't help Judah for long. They started attacking Ahaz and distressing him. So as far as I can see, that's the first kind of inclination I see of um, Israel in the south, the, the, the two tribes to the north, Judah and Benjamin, being attacked from Syria from the north. Later on, we see that after Assyria comes down and takes all ten tribes up into exile, they continue to start devastating cities in Judah. And then they come down in Hezekiah's time, who was a very righteous king, and they come and surround Jerusalem. So here's what I'm presenting to you. I've read both of those, and part of me wants to think this must have been Ahaz towards the end of his reign. Um, but there is a possibility that this was Hezekiah, and it's just not mentioned anywhere else. If it is Hezekiah, I think that's kind of awesome because I see in it the grace and mercy of God. This is kind of an embarrassing incident for God to not mention it in the narrative of Hezekiah and him just to say here, let me just give you the lesson and exclude from it the names. I'm going to uh, omit the names to protect the, the, the guilty, you know, or not the innocent, but he's going to omit the names because God is so gracious and patient. And, and Hezekiah really did seek the Lord and serve the Lord and bring a revival about in the nation. And God is gracious to do it in a very private way, in a very personal way. And God does that, doesn't he? Like sometimes when he corrects us, he speaks to us, at least I found in my life, he speaks to me privately first, personally first. He gives me the opportunity to repent before him first. 
And then if I reject and rebel and refuse and push, then he says, well, then I'm going to have to escalate. And really, it's that I escalated in my sin. You know, I escalated, so the Lord says, no, I'm not going to, just because you escalated doesn't mean I'm going to let you get away with it. I can't let you get away with sin. Sin produces death. It's going to destroy you. So if I escalate it, then the Lord escalates it. And it just keeps going until finally, if, if I keep pushing it, the Lord says, I'm going to have to deal with this publicly. And so in God's grace and mercy, I don't know who this, who, what, what leadership, what administration did this. I don't know if this was King Ahaz or if this was King Hezekiah, but, um, but I can tell you what was happening. What was happening was that the Assyrians were coming in from the north and they were attacking uh, nation after nation. This is a new up-and-coming world-dominating empire. And they, they were some scary people. They were really terrifying people. You know? So this is one of the reasons why we have kind of an of a, of a, uh, adult setting you know, in the sanctuary is so that we have the freedom to learn certain things that um, might not be uh, ready for sensitive ears. You know? And so if you're watching and you've got below sixth graders, you might want to mute it for a couple seconds. But the Assyrians were terrible people. Um, one Assyrian account had that uh, during this time they had uh, beheaded 14,000 people and skinned them and put their skins like a drape over the city walls and their heads like a pyramid in front of the city gates. They were some terrifying people. Uh, we talk about uh, crucifixion as a, the most painful uh, means of death, and it was, but it wasn't invented by the Romans. It was perfected by the Romans. The Romans made it as painful and as long and drawn out as possible. But the Assyrians were the ones who invented it. And when they invented it, it was just impaling somebody on a sharp stick. And, and, and so these guys were scary. Their, their ways of, and if you know, you're uh, watching online, you can unmute it. But, it, you know, it, they had, imagine those people are the ones that are breathing down your neck. Those people are the ones that are slowly taking over city after city after city after city, and they're coming. And it's terrifying. That's how they operated, with terror. If you surrendered to them, they'd say, all right, cool, you're a part of the Assyrians now. They'd throw you out, take over your city, um, and uh, they left you alone. But if not, then they would do these horrible things to you so that you would be devastated and everybody else would be terrified to fight. So this is the, 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 the gory, nasty details about what happened um, during those times. And as the people of Israel in the south, in, in, the, in the tribes of Judah, are looking up and they're seeing this, this ominous, terrifying uh, wave that's coming down to destroy them, to oppress them, to attack them. I mean, understandably, they're overwhelmed. They don't know what to do. And the first thing they do is they come up with a plan. And it seems to be a good plan. Their plan was this. The main enemies of Assyria at the time were Egypt. So why don't we take whatever wealth we have left and send it to Egypt? And we're going to make a treaty with Egypt, and they'll come and support us and attack Assyria, and then we won't have to worry about Assyria. That, to me, sounds a whole lot like what Ahaz did with Assyria already in the past. Like, he went into league with these people, the Assyrians, and now, he, now these people are out to get all of his wealth. You know, or maybe Hezekiah saw his dad do it, or says Ahaz's old administration. You know, they say, "Oh, we know how to deal with the Assyrians. Let's just make a league with these ungodly people towards the south." But there's a problem with the plan. The plan was it wasn't God's plan. That's what this chapter is about. 
This is God's, this chapter is God rebuking his people because in a time of challenge, in a time of difficulty, in a time of overwhelming distress, they're turning to the world for counsel and they're not turning to him for counsel. And so that's the context that we need to kind of go through it. Once you understand that, everything goes by very, very smoothly. Verse 1, it says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. And so the word there in the Hebrew, rebellious, means to turn away, to be refractory, rebellious, revolter, a backslider, to be stubborn, to withdraw. These are children that withdraw. They don't listen to their authorities. Not just disobedient children. These are rebellious children. They rebel against or disobey openly and brazenly the authority that they ought to have allegiance to. And that's who they are. Now, from one side, this is a stern word. This is God, you know, using his dad voice, you know, uh, in the house. You know, I'm, I'm a dad. I got two kids. And, and you've got the regular voice that you talk with. And then sometimes you've got to use the dad voice. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not prone to have a temper. So usually I have to affect a dad voice. You know, I could get really loud, but I'd probably, you know, pop all the speakers or something, you know, because uh, I can project. But, uh, you know, you, you, you've, got that kind of, you've got that kind of commanding, you know, voice. Hey, listen up. I'm talking to you. Pay attention. Eye contact. You know, the Lord's speaking, and the Lord's speaking to his rebellious children. And he's saying woe to them, which means it's a warning. It's a, it's a rebuke. And what he's rebuking them for is that they're taking counsel. And usually that's not a bad thing, right? Asking for advice is a good thing. Um, but in this case, they're not asking the right people for advice. They're asking worldly people. They have this counsel, this advice of going to the world for help, and they're not going to the Lord. They're devising plans, which in the Hebrew is literally pouring out a libation. That's when they it was like a form of showing uh, homage to uh, other deities where they would have an altar. It would be heated up, and they'd take some wine and pour it out, and the steam would rise up, and it was a way to kind of honor that other deity. He says, you're going, or inquire of that other deity, you're going to ask these other deities for help, but you're not asking me for help. You're going with your plan to go do this thing over here, but you haven't asked me what my opinion is. And he says that you might add sin to sin because there's two sins going on there. The first sin is that they didn't ask God for help. Did you know that when you're going through something difficult, not only should you ask God for help, but he expects you to ask God for help. He expects you to come to him first. Why wouldn't you go to him first? He loves you. He created you. He died on the cross for your sins. And so he says, how is it that you have a problem and you're trying to fix it on your own? Why wouldn't you ask me? And he considers it to be an act of rebellion to not ask him. Isn't that something? Isn't that a freeing thing? Some of us are a little proud. I'm a little proud. I think, well, I don't need to ask God for help. I'll fix this myself. I have a couple of ideas. I know how I can work this out. And if everything, if I set this up just right, and if everything works out just right, then I'll, I'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And the Lord says, why don't you talk to me? Why don't you ask me? Why don't you seek my advice and counsel? And so the first sin is that they didn't ask God for help. The second sin is that they went to the world for help. Why would you go there for help? 
I mean, they're sinful. Egypt, all throughout Scripture, is a type of the world. They were in bondage there for 430 years. And the Lord delivered them and broke those bonds. And they worshipped all kinds of idols over there. God told them, you're never going to have to see their face again. And now when there's a problem, you're going to go ask them for help? They kept you in bondage. They were your taskmasters. Now they're going to save you? I'm your maker. I brought you into this land. Ask me. Seek from me. Find out why this is happening. Who devised plans but not of my spirit, that they might add sin to sin. Who walk down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. You see, it's a shadow of Egypt. It's like it's just a shadow. You're going to lean on a shadow. You, you think they're strong, but they're not. In the divine purposes of the Lord, God knew that Assyria had the baton right now for world-ruling empires. It used to be Egypt. They, they're the only people that were even remotely close to being strong. But now they're going to go to them. God says, you don't know what you're doing. Why are you going to them for help? They're not going to be able to help you. And so they, have, they go, walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Have not asked me for advice is literally, you know, you haven't come to hear a word from my mouth yet. Why would you not even ask for a word from my mouth? What was there a recent, recent thing that happened? I remember, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a big proponent of asking for advice. <laughs> if I know someone that's gone through something, you know, a, a bunch of times, I will call and see what their opinion is. I would rather have their opinion and weigh it out. You know, they might be right, they might be wrong, I understand, but hey, why not benefit from the experience of others, right? Who has more experience than the Lord? And so he says, you haven't even come to hear a word from my mouth yet, and yet you're looking to the strength or the fortified places of Egypt. You're trusting in them for protection. And so the question should be for us, who do I turn to when I have a problem? You know, who do I turn to when I have a decision that I need to make? Do I turn to my own resources? Do I do my, my Google research, you know? Do I, do I call my, my trusted group of friends, you know, the people that I know that will encourage me to do what I want to do or <laughs> the people that I know that, you know, they'll hear me out, they won't hit me too hard, you know? Who do I turn to? Do I turn to social media? Do I turn to, you know, my family? Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with turning to family, but man, my question would be, why shouldn't we turn to the Lord first? And that's really what's on the Lord's heart is you should ask me first. You'll save a lot of time. And, and sometimes there's things that you're, all those other lists, your friends might not know, that Google research might not be aware of, you know, that social media might be totally off base on. But God might know details. God does know details. He knows the past, present, and future. Nobody here knows the future. God knows the future. So why wouldn't we ask him first? Why wouldn't we seek it from his heart? Why wouldn't we ask God what he thinks? Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, and your trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. So shame, that's an interesting word. It means a painful sensation uh, excited by a consciousness of guilt or having done something that injures reputation. It's usually caused by the disclosure of actions which might be considered mean or degrading. And so there's going to come a time when they're going to realize the guilt of this, the shame that they have because of doing something they should not have done. And what would be disclosed in their actions would be that they didn't trust God. And that's a really shameful thing for God's people, for them not to trust the Lord. It's going to be disclosed because when Egypt doesn't help them, 
and now they're broke, <laughs> they're going to have two problems, Assyria and they're broke. You know? And so the Lord says, why are you going to go do this thing that's only going to be a shame to you? Turn to me. It's going to result in humiliation, which means disgrace, reproach, shame, confusion, dishonor. And it's kind of worth noting. I, I have it kind of burned in my memory. There are two kinds of wisdom. There's a wisdom of the Lord. There's a heavenly wisdom. And then there's a worldly wisdom. There's an ungodly, sensual wisdom. It, it, and, it, and the worldly wisdom is corrupt. But on a, on a worldly sense, it kind of just seems to make sense. Right? It's worldly. From a worldly perspective, yeah, that seems like it makes sense. But sometimes that worldly wisdom, all the time, that worldly wisdom runs contrary to the wisdom of the Lord, to heavenly wisdom. So it's really important that we get his wisdom. You know, not just somebody coming and purporting something that seemingly makes common sense or um, from a worldly perspective, you know. Uh, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? James 3, 13 through 18. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy, James is great because he tells you, here's how you can tell the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. So if somebody's coming to give you counsel or advice, and there's self-seeking, there's envy in that counsel or advice, it's selfish, it's self-absorbed, it's all about you, it's all about them, <laughs> that's not wisdom from God. That's earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first, here's how you can tell God's wisdom. First, it's pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle. Have you ever had somebody purporting to give you heavenly wisdom and it's not gentle? <laughs> it's really like, wow, that's, that seems really aggressive. I don't know if there's any really need for that because I'm listening to you. Willing to yield. How about that? Wisdom from above, if you're hearing from the Lord, you're willing to yield. You're willing to yield. Full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So back here in Isaiah 30, verse 4, it says, For the princes were at Zoan, and his ambassadors came to Hanes. They got some nice undershirts. But um, these were cities in Egypt that uh, it would seem from the way that it's being described that ambassadors were sent out on this. All the money was collected. It was laden on donkeys and camels. And they're all sent down to Egypt to meet with the Egyptians. He says, his princes are at Zoan. They're already there. Ambassadors came to Hanes. They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or help them, but a shame and also a reproach. Because the thing is that God was doing something in bringing the Assyrians down. God wanted to defeat and destroy the Assyrians. And God wanted to glorify his own name in front of the people of Israel. In his mercy, not because they deserved it. In his incredible grace and mercy, God brought this overwhelming, terrifying foe right up to the doorsteps of God's people. Because God wanted to show himself strong. But... And I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Problem comes into your life. It's overwhelming, terrifying. You've got no solution to it. And you think, we're all going to die. And the first inclination is, I have to fix this on my own. I have to find a way to solve this. And, and, and so that's what they did. They send these ambassadors to help. And God says, hey, I'm right here. 
Why wouldn't you talk? Like, even talk to me. Ask me. Seek, seek from me what I want to do for you. Because if you go now to try to get this off of you, you're fighting not against the Assyrians. You're fighting against what I'm doing. And whenever we're fighting against what God's doing, it's not going to work. No matter how good you are at fighting against anybody, you're not going to win a fight against the Lord. And so he says, it's all going to be of no benefit or help to you. It's, not going to be, it's just going to be a shame and a reproach. And the Lord is gracious and merciful. But i got to believe this is really difficult for the Lord. <laughs> to be there, the amazing, all-powerful, all-knowing, kind, loving God, their Father, who regarded them as children, and to see them paying so much money for something God would have done for them for free. Why are you going there? Why are you taking everything over there? You're just going to end up broke. It's going to use and consume up everything that you have, and you're still not going to have any help. I'm right here. I would have done it for you. I would have done it for you. I would have blessed you. I would have delivered you. I would have saved you. And so there he says in verse 6, and, and this to me is a little, a little comedic, if I'm understanding it right, and I think I am, uh, verse 6 and 7. Sometimes I, re I read some passages and part of me wants to like, make a biblical argument for sarcasm because I feel like the Lord is sometimes sarcastic, but usually when he's very upset. So maybe that sh I shouldn't be making any biblical argument for, for sarcasm. But to me, he says, The burden against the beasts of the south through a land of trouble and anguish, from which came the lioness and the lion, the viper and the fiery flying serpent. They will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels, to a people who shall not profit them. And so it's kind of like the Lord saying, this is my, this is my, I'm going to tell you, the Lord saying, I'm going to tell you who I feel bad for in this. And it's not the leaders of Israel because they're making a terrible decision. I feel bad for those donkeys and camels. They're carrying all that weight all through that terrible land, traveling all the way to Egypt, and they're not going to, it's all for nothing. It's like, man, you're, you're really bugging those camels and donkeys. And it's, and it's in a sense, a, 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 an embarrassment to the people of Israel because he's like, well, you guys should have asked me in the first place. You, got, you should have sought me and waited for my response in the first place. But then once he doesn't, he's like, well, now you're, now you're burdening all the camels and donkeys and they're, they're, they're having a hard time of it. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore, I have called her Rahab Hem Shabeth. And so... The word, I mean, you might hear that and be like, wait, Rahab from Joshua? Um, Rahab is a name in Hebrew um, that is sometimes used of Egypt. Um, and it comes from a root for pride. It's used also of Egypt in Psalm 87, verse 4. And, and so here he's saying, you're gonna, what you're going to call um, Egypt is you're going to call them Rahab Hem Shabeth, which means Rahab does nothing. Rahab sits idle. Or, and, and pride, or pride sits idle. They're just sitting there in their pride and they're not going to do anything to help you. That's going to be your nickname for them as you're panicking and seeing the Assyrians coming down. And then he says this, Write, now go, and write, that, write before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may come for a time, that it may be for a time to come and forever. The Lord says, essentially, I want this to be recorded because there's going to come a time where they're not going to remember this, but I want this written down. They might blame me for what happens next. So write this down so that they know it. And sure enough, we know it. It's been recorded for a long time. I love when Job says, oh, that my words were written in a book, and we're reading it from a book. You know, isn't that awesome? 
Um, and who knows how many of your prayers are answered, and you don't know that God answered that prayer. But, you know, here he's saying, um, write this so that it's remembered forever, that this is a rebellious people. These are lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord. Children who will not hear the law of the Lord. Isn't that the, the day and age in which we're living in? Who say to their seers, do not see, and to their prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get out of the way. Here you've got the image of like they have this idea and this thing is going to work and it's going to save us and deliver us. And we figured it out, guys, but it needs to work exactly so. So get all the riches, everything, everybody give everything you have. Put it on these donkeys. Let's ship it down to Egypt. And as they're getting ready to go down and the princes and leaders are going there as ambassadors, you've got seers and prophets saying, stop. This is not of the Lord. Turn around. Go back to where you came from. You're only going to waste your money. God wants to deliver you. God wants to bless you. And he's speaking to them really clearly. And what are they saying? Guys, just stop seeing from the Lord. Stop prophesying to us right things. I don't, I don't want to hear that. Speak to me smooth things. I, I want it to sound good. The way Paul would put it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 4, verse 3, we read it recently um, as a church. He said, the time is going to come when people don't want to hear the truth anymore. They just want to have their ears tickled, you know. I got a, I got a three-year-old and I, I got a, a three-month-old and I'm still trying to figure out how to get her to laugh. So you tickle her ear, you know, see if she likes it. She does, so far, I haven't succeeded. My, she likes my wife more than she likes me. But that's okay. I'll be, I'll, I have time. I can win her over. But, um, you know, the people are, the time's going to come where people, people don't care about the truth. I had a conversation earlier in the break room. Like, what, what is it that gets you upset? Well, usually I get upset when, like, something has clearly been presented in this, as the truth, and it's not accepted. It's the truth. It's right there. Why are you not seeing it? And so so I, I restrain it. I won't, I, won't, I, won't, I won't be mean with anybody. But, but I can imagine, you know, here how the difficulty must be for the prophets. I'm just trying to tell you what God said, man. I'm just trying to give you God's message. I'm just trying to give you the truth. The right way, what you're doing is wrong. Don't do that. And they say, I don't want to hear you. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. I'm going somewhere. I'm doing something here. Tell me what I want to hear. Soften the blow a little bit. I don't care if it's true or not. I just don't want it to be so sharp when it hits me. And, and that's a terrible place to be at. They're rejecting this word from the Lord. They want a message, they wanted a message that conformed to what they want to hear, whether it was true or not. So here in the next verse, you see verse 12, Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them. And despise is to reject, um, to despise, to refuse, to abhor, to cast away. So they're taking the message God's giving them and they're throwing it out. Oppression is, man, that's what it, Egypt did to them. Egypt was their oppressor. And you're going to trust in the people that oppressed you? How often have I turned back, have I relied on things that have oppressed me for comfort or for peace? You know, these very things are sometimes sins that took years for the Lord to deliver me from. And when I'm stressed out, when I'm worried, the first thing I do is i got to go back to that sin. i got to go back to that. Maybe it's not even a sin, but it's a sin to you. 
And it's just what you're depending on. You know, I, it's, I'm trying to reprogram my brain. I'm trying to let the Holy Spirit reprogram my brain. If I'm turning to something else, when I'm stressed out or when I'm worried or when I'm anxious, that's become, that's come into a place in my life it shouldn't be. Whether that's pornography or whether that's cake. Whatever, whatever it is. One is something that has so much shame attached to it. And the other is something that probably nobody will think twice if, you know, you're sitting in a corner. Well, if you're sitting in a corner, like, chomping on cake, somebody's probably going to have an issue with it. But am I trusting in that? Am I looking to that for comfort? Or am I looking to the Lord to lead me and guide me? And so they're trusting in oppression. They're trusting in perversity. And they're relying on them. They're leaning on it. Therefore, this iniquity, this sin, is going to be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. They, they would have these walls made out of limestone, and they had discovered that if, the, the, if you were attacking a city with limestone walls, if you made a nice fire in front of it, it would suck all the, uh, the um, moisture out of the limestone, and it would crack, you know? And, or it would develop this big bulge that would just crash down, you know? And so he said, this thing to you is going to be like that. I always think it's really interesting when the Lord kind of speaks to us because in a passage like this, it, this passage might mean something totally different to you than it has to me in your application. I'm, I'm, I, we're going through what it means. It has one interpretation, right? But it, it might have a thousand applications. God might be speaking to you about something very directly and intimately and personally that's a little different than how God has used this to speak to me. But here he says this is going to be to you like a bulge in a wall. It's going to fall down suddenly and, and, and in an instant. And it's going to be like that to you, you know. And, and, and I just think of that word to you and the way that God sometimes speaks to us in such a way. Man, if God's speaking to you about something, if it's something unique and personal to you, don't ignore it. God's speaking to you. Heed the counsel of the Lord. There, there's been times where, where people's I'm trying to, I'm going to have a conversation in my head in a second. If the Lord calls you to do something that he doesn't call the person next to you to do, would you be willing to do it? What if that thing would be a destruction to you? But it wouldn't be a destruction to that person next to you. And what if God's trying to protect you and save you and deliver you from it? Shouldn't you heed the Lord even if they don't have to do it? Like so often the Lord goes up to Peter and says to Peter, Peter, after he restores him, he says, you're going to die a martyr's death and you're going to go to places where you don't want to go. And Peter goes, what about John? <laughs> you know, is he going to have to go through what I'm going through? And, and Jesus says to him, what is that to you? You come and follow me. And, and, and Jesus is awesome because he very intimately and personally might go through the aisles one at a time. Just say, hey, will you give this up for me? You need to let that go. And this other thing, man, you should surrender that to me. And then, but he doesn't tell you what he told him. He doesn't tell you what you, he told her. He tells each of us something different because he knows who and how we are, right? When the rich young ruler comes, he says, you, well, you need, to, you need to sell all you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. He didn't tell that to other people, but he said it to him, and Jesus and says Jesus loved him. And he went away sorrowful, because Jesus was great at putting his hand on the one 
thing that needed to be surrendered. I gotta do what? You know? So don't be, don't be surprised if the Lord puts his hand on something in your life that's different. To you, it might be a bulge in a wall, a, a breach that's ready to fall, and God's trying to protect you and spare you from it. And he shall break it like the breaking of a potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces, he shall not spare. So there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take from the fire, uh, from the hearth, or to take water from a cistern. So he says, this is going to be broken so thoroughly. I mean, even in those days when you broke a, 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 a clay pot, you'd say, oh, well, I could still reuse this piece of clay pot here. I'll, I'll use it to grab some coals from this fire to start the next fire. And the Lord says, you're not going to be able to salvage anything from this whole endeavor. There's not going to be a thing you can salvage out of it. You know? For thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in returning... And rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. It says returning, here this idea of returning to the Lord. In rest, it's, it's basically just a, to, to dis, a descent. It's to calm, sit down, just calm down, recline, rest. I mean, can you imagine? That's like my dream command from the Lord. <laughs> Listen, you want to be saved? Just stop and sit down for a bit, you know? But, and, and essentially, the Lord is telling them this big, oppressive weight is coming down. But here's going to be your salvation. You need to trust me. You need to just sit back and watch what I'm about to do. That's not always the prescription, but that's the prescription here. And it might be the prescription for what you're going through. The Lord might say, be still and see that I am God. Be still and see that I am God. It's what he told the nation of Israel when they're in, in, surrounded by these cliffs on one side, a rock on the other, and the Red Sea in front of them. And the, the, the Egyptians are coming back after them, and they're panicking, thinking they're all going to die. And the Lord says, be still and see that I am God. I would be, I don't know what I would be doing. My knees would be knocking, you know? He says, just calm down. Trust me. Trust me. Can we in those moments exercise a deep-seated trust in the Lord? Can you imagine what it must have been for Isaiah to be in that position? He's in the city with everybody else. He sees Assyria bearing down on them in this irresistible force like everybody else. And everybody else is running around screaming, and he's just... Calmly eating his breakfast, you know, his profitos or whatever his cereal is. He's just really, really chilled out because he trusts in God. God already spoke to him about that. And are we listening to the word of God? Are we hearing his promises for our specific situation and having peace because of it? And here he says, and, and just for the sake of hearing it, and the whole thing, he says, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. I told you I would take care of this. But you're not going to listen? He said, okay. You said, we're going to flee in horses. Okay, you shall flee. We're going to ride on swift for horses. He says, those who pursue you shall be swift. He says, you're going to turn to something other than me and think that that's going to help you and save you and deliver you? He says, this is the work of God. You're going to depend on natural resources and natural everything. I will make sure that it will not meet your need. <laughs> because God's trying to get our attention. Do you understand? It's not out of like, like a cruelty. It's out of incredible love. 
that he says, I will not let you solve your problem. You need to learn to let me solve your problem. It won't work. And he says, 1,000 shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee, until you are left as a pole on the top of a mountain and as a banner on the hill. Can you think of anything more desolate, like just a pole on top of a mountain? There's nothing else there. He says, it's going to continue like this until there's nothing else left for you to turn to. So, I don't know if this, if the flip side of this that we're about to read was, I don't know if what has happened thus far happened in the time of Ahaz or in the time of Hezekiah in the beginning. But I do know that this was resolved in the time of Hezekiah. Because at that time, all the Assyrians gathered outside the front door of Hezekiah. And they give this letter to Hezekiah saying to him, Who are you trusting in, the Lord your God? What are you trusting in, Egypt? And they mock him. And, and you remember he takes that letter before the Lord and he lays it out before him and he says, Lord, I don't know what to do. I have no solutions. I have no answers. I have no power. I have no resources. I can't do anything. And I think of this verse here. Until you're left like a, mount, like a pole on a mountaintop. Why was God doing it that severely to them? Because that's what it took for them to say, all right, I need your help. <laughs> what does it take for you to say, oh God, I need your help. Only your help will save me. Only you will deliver me. I can't get out of this without you. And so the Lord had allowed them to come to a place where there's nothing else left. And then they cried out to the Lord their God. Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. Everything turns in verse 18. And it turns from the Lord saying a rebuke to Israel for turning to the world for help. When God wanted to save them, he wouldn't ask God for counsel. He said, who do you ask for counsel? Can I just, I'm going to throw this out there. Because it's good. It's like a secret, uh, you know, the seven tips to asking for advice. Um, if you're asking, most of the people that I, I'm around the other pastors, right? If you're asking one of the pastors for advice and you tell them, God told me to do this. If it's not unscriptural, if it's unscriptural, they're going to say, I don't think God said that. But if it is, if it's not a scriptural issue, it's a decision, a choice, or whatever. God told me to do this. They're going to try to counsel you as best they can to help you accomplish that goal. But there's a difference between saying God told me to do this and what do you think I should do? What advice would you give me in this situation? You might get totally different advice because they might hear, oh, God told you to do that. Listen, I am not going to mess with the Lord. That's what God told you to do. You do that, right? But if you come and say, what do you think I should do? Well, listen, everything in my being and in my experience says that you should not do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? But if God's telling you to do it, I'm not going to fight with the Lord because it's not a scriptural issue. So, so think about how you speak and how you ask for advice. It's important. If, if, if you're asking for advice, you might want to say, what's your advice? But if you, if you want someone to help you accomplish what, a decision you've already made, then maybe you can communicate, I've already made this decision, how I think is the best way for me to accomplish it. All right, all right, I've got that monkey off my back. Um, 
there's something in the Lord hearing this and saying, you're going and doing all these other things and running around, but I could help you. What about me helping you? But when they won't listen to that, then he says, all right, go wear yourself out. When you're done, I'll be standing right here waiting for you to come and ask me for help. And he says, I'm going to wait for you. And that hits me, man. I don't, it's hard for me to wait for people. People have had to wait for me, so I'm a little bit of a hypocrite in it. But, man, for me to wait sometimes is so difficult. I'm like, I could be doing something. Can I, can I have like a crossword puzzle or something just to entertain myself? I carry around a big history book that I'm slowly reading every time I'm in line because I want to make use of the time that I'm spending in that line. You know, it's a good book. But the Lord, God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, to say to you, to say to me, I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to wait. I want to bless you. But right now you're not allowing me to bless you. So I'll wait. I'll wait for you to be finished. And then I'll bless you. I'm going to wait so that I can show you grace. Have you ever felt like you've had to wait on the Lord? I have. Sometimes it felt like, man, I'm waiting years. I'm waiting decades. Sometimes I have perfect timing. Listen, God, you need to do this by this day or else everything is lost. And then the day passes and the Lord didn't do it. And I can give you something that you can hold on to that goes far beyond what the Lord was speaking to them here. Every time the Lord, you're waiting on the Lord, it's because God wants to do something even greater and deeper in your life than when you think. You can afford to wait on him. He says there, I'm going to wait to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. And blessed or happy are all of those, not some of those, but all of those who wait on him. And love the idea of waiting here. It, it speaks of specifically to stay or rest in expectation until the arrival of some person or event to adhere to, to await, to tarry. The Lord says, I'm waiting in expectation of you surrendering your will so that I can work in grace and mercy in your life. And everyone who waits for me will be blessed. I've never seen anyone put their faith and hope and trust in the Lord and be disappointed because of it. I'm not saying idle waiting. Sometimes people put that as an excuse. You know, I'm just going to sit here and not do nothing, you know. No, man, you should be seeking the Lord with all your heart. You should be being faithful and diligent on everything that he has told you, you know. We let slip what he gave us, and then we give his excuse we're waiting on the Lord. No, 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 be faithful, be diligent, do what's in, do what's in your hand, work with that, you know. But wait on God. Trust in the Lord. Don't turn to the world for, 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 uh, for a solution. Abraham waited for how many years for Isaac to come? For years he waited. Decades he waited for Isaac to come. And just before the fulfillment of the promise, what if I try to do it myself? What if I have an Ishmael? And he spends the rest of his life dealing with the Ishmael. And we're still dealing with the Ishmael. You know? And so there's always very often this temptation, usually right at the cusp of God doing what he's going to do. It's like, well, you know, I could, you could do it the easy way. I mean, it's, it's right here. You can just solve your own problems. Problems solved, and you wouldn't even have to worry about this anymore. And you start thinking, 
maybe God wants me to solve this a worldly way. You know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll just go ahead and do it, do it that way. And maybe that's what really God really meant all along. Oh, man. I'm going to wait to bless you. For the people shall dwell in, in, in Zion and at Jerusalem, and you shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, for your eyes shall see your teachers. If you look at it in the Hebrew, it's your teacher. Isn't he our teacher? And for years I'm like, yeah, that's what I want. It says in the next verse, you're going to hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. And I thought, God, that's what I'm asking for. I want clarity. Lord, you make the message clearer. But that's not in context what's going on there. Because God was speaking to them really clearly back in verse 10 and 11. And they were saying, get out of the way. So then here God's saying, don't worry. You're going to see your teacher again. I'm not going to be out of the way into the corner where you pushed me. You're going to see me. Your eyes are going to see your teacher. You're going to hear my voice. I'm going to give you direction. He was giving them direction before. They weren't listening. He says, you, you will listen. I will bring you to a place where you will listen. And you will hear. And you're going to see your teacher with your eyes. Isn't that a great hope of the resurrection? Your eyes will see your teacher. You know, back to that vo- verse I mentioned before, Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see him. I will stand with him on that day. That's the hope you have as a believer, as a Christian. You, your eyes, will see Jesus with your eyes. You'll see him face to face. And you'll see all the other believers that you've loved and lost. But you'll see, his, you'll see your teacher. And that's the ultimate fulfillment of this passage. He says, you'll see me. And you're going to hear a word behind you saying, this is the way walking in it, wherever you turn to the right hand or whatever you turn to the left. And then this is going to produce purity in your life. You will also defile the coverings of your images of silver and the ornaments of your molded images of gold. And you're going to throw them away as an unclean thing. You're going to say to them, get away. This is after you've gotten the bread of affliction the bread of adversity and the, the water of affliction. I, I don't want to get the food wrong. Hold on. Let me go back and read it. It says, the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. In Psalm 119, David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now that I've been afflicted by the Lord, the Lord allowed me to go through hardship and difficulty and affliction. Now I don't go astray anymore. Now I love the Lord. Now I love the word. I just want to stay right where he has me. And he goes, though you've been fed the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, you're not going to be turned aside to the right or to the left anymore. Your teachers aren't going to be pushed away. God isn't going to be pushed away. You're going to have them before you. You're going to listen. You're going to receive. And you're going to get direction from the Lord. And when you get that, you're going to finally take those things you've been worshiping, the idols, and you're going to toss them. You're going to learn to hate those idols. Isn't that great? Coming to a place where all the things that you've turned to for help before you turn to God for help, you finally view them the way God views it. You worship the Lord in a way that's different than the way that you worship anything else. And God is first and foremost in your life. If you love Jesus, man, that's something that you long for. 
And, and I love how much disdain they're going to have for the things when they're presented. Somebody's going, hey, do you want this idol? Get that away from me. I don't want to see that. You know how long I was in bondage to that? That we would have this hatred of sin. And he will give rain for your seed, which you shall sow to the ground, and bread of increase of the earth will be fat and plentiful in the day of your cattle, in the day that your cattle will feed in large pastures. And he goes on there to talk about incredible provision. He says, you're going to have food in abundance. If the challenge you're dealing with is adversity and and affliction and and lack and need and desperation, you're going to have an abundance of it, an abundance of it. God, I I could bless you with all that stuff. Don't worry about that. And and we know that in the fulfillment of that, um, you have all the Assyrians came down and Hezekiah prays before the Lord and God sends one angel and destroys 187,000 Assyrian soldiers overnight. Not like a special angel, not Michael the archangel. He sends Larry the angel, you know, or, or Bob the angel. Hey, is there anybody that's not busy? You, over here. Can you just take care of those Assyrians real quick? Oh, yeah, I'll be right back. And, and he, he takes care of 187,000 elite warriors in one night without a sword, you know. Didn't break a sweat. And, and then translate that to whatever oppressive weight is barreling down on you. God can deal with it. God won't even break a sweat. He might not even have to come down and do it himself. He might just send an angel. You know, one of the temps. You know, let's just go down there and deal with that real quick. God is faithful. He's just, his power is way beyond our need. His ability is way beyond our need. But if you're here and maybe some of this cuts to your heart, I want to skip down to one verse and the worship team can come up. In chapter 31, it's just kind of recapping everything over again. Chapter 31, I'm going to read a quote for you. This is from Spurgeon. He said, certain of God's people are in trouble and distress. They are eager for immediate rescue. They can't wait for God's time, nor exercise submission to his will. He will surely deliver them in due season, but they cannot wait until the hour that he cometh. Like children, they snatch at unripe unripe fruit. That's that's tough. I'll tell you from a from a ministerial or pastoral perspective, that's hard to see. Often I see people snatching at unripe fruit. It's like, ah, oh, this is almost prepared from, by the Lord for you. Why are you snatching it right now? Just wait a little bit. But I gotta let, you got to let people, you know, go through their, 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 their own walk. To everything there is a season and, every, and a time to every purpose under heaven, but their one season is the present. They cannot and they will not wait. They must have their desire instantaneously fulfilled or else they will be ready to take the wrong means of attaining it. If it's poverty, they haste to be rich and they will not be long innocent. If it's under reproach, their heart ferments towards revenge. They will sooner rush under the guidance of Satan into some questionable policy than in childlike simplicity to trust in the Lord and do good. It must not be so with you, my brethren. You must learn a better way. If you're here and you're cut to the heart, the verse for us is verse 6 of chapter 31. Return to him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. Return. Repent. It's a simple thing. If the Lord speaks to you, the Lord convicts you, maybe you've got a lot of investment in what the Lord is speaking to you about, return and repent. It's probably totally different for you, but the first time this passage cut me to the heart, I was very upset with someone, and I was going to give them a piece of my mind. I have a long fuse, usually. I have a very long fuse, but once I'm, once I'm you know, 
nope, I'm decided, I'm doing this. And I prayed and said, Lord, do you want me to do this? And I didn't hear anything because I was really upset. And that makes it harder for you to hear the Lord. And I said, all right, well, I'm doing it. And I made all my commitments. I scheduled and booked an appointment. I just have to go to this Bible study real quick. And then right afterwards, I'm meeting them, and I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. And I'm sitting in the Bible study, and they start reading this chapter. And I'm like, oh, man. So I'm texting them, don't worry about it. I don't have to meet with you today. i got to go pray and spend time with the Lord, you know. It might be different for you. But no matter how invested you are, if the Lord's speaking to you, directing you, redirecting you, return and repent. Because the Lord's waiting for you. He's been waiting to bless. Lord, I thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us here. And I pray, especially, Lord, if the issue of our eternity is not solved, resolved here this evening, help us to return and repent, Lord, that we wouldn't continue to be hard-headed, knuckle-headed, Lord, rebellious, but that we would surrender our will to you, Lord. You have graciously been waiting for us, Lord. Oh, God, Lord, may we not make you wait any longer. Lord, may you... May you Lord, may you be free, Lord, to pour out, to lavish your love on us, your blessings on us, the fulfillment of those things our heart longs and desires for. Um, God, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, there's pastors up front.